Good afternoon, and welcome to the Jewish Policy Center webinar. I am Shoshana Bryan, Senior Director of the JPC and your host. Before we go to our guest, Dr. Stephen Bryan, here is your JPC commercial. We were established in 1985 as a 501c3 organization, providing analysis of both foreign and domestic policies. We support a strong American defense capability, U.S.-Israel security cooperation, and missile defense. We support the legitimacy and security of our democratic ally, Israel, against anyone who would deny them. As an organization that sits slightly to the right of center, the JPC advocates for small government, low taxes, free trade, fiscal responsibility, energy security, free speech, and intellectual diversity. You can find us on our website, jewishpolicycenter.org. That's jewishpolicycenter.org. There you can read our insight articles, our magazine In Focus Quarterly, and our blog In Context. You can also find our previous webinar programs. Some of you have been with us on these programs since early 2020. We've done China more than once, Israel more than once, Iran, Turkey, domestic security, the defense budget, the Supreme Court, and homeschooling. We took a look at the short war between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and America's hasty and ill-executed exit from Afghanistan. All of those are on the website. Today, our guest is Dr. Stephen Bryan. And yes, for those of you who asked, we are related. A senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy and the Yorktown Institute, Steve is an expert in security, strategy, and technology. He has held senior positions in DOD, on Capitol Hill, and is president of a large multinational defense and technology company. He's a prolific writer, and his articles appear everywhere you think they would, and some places you wouldn't think they would, here and abroad. He has published six books on technology and security subjects, including Technology, Security, and National Power, and Security for Holy Places. And he's contributed to a number of studies on national security and defense. You've probably seen him in our magazine, In Focus Quarterly, and in our insight columns. If you haven't, go find them on the website, jewishpolicycenter.org. That's jewishpolicycenter.org. How's that for getting in an extra mention of the website address? With decades of experience in government and industry, Steve has served as Senior Staff Director at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Trade Security Policy, Founder and First Director of the Defense Technology Security Agency Administration, DTSA or DITSA, and a commissioner on the US-China Security Review Commission. He is twice the recipient of the highest civilian award of the Pentagon. He took his expertise to industry as president of FinMechanica North America, a multinational defense and technology company. The late great Morley Safer of 60 Minutes once said of him, Dr. Bryan was the Pentagon's top cop, the man whose job it was to ensure sensitive technology would be kept from our enemies, our potential enemies, and from questionable allies. So how are we doing? Dr. Stephen Bryan, the floor is yours. Thank you. We're not doing very well. And uh, if I could talk to Morley today, I would tell him how bad it is, because there's a lot we can be doing. And, and I think the situation with Iranian drones is a great example. So what I'd like to do today 
is to put on a little slideshow. I, I was trained in the Pentagon. And in the Pentagon, you can't talk without doing a slideshow. So you're going to have to suffer with it. But I think it'll be helpful. And we'll take a look at some of these Iranian drones, and maybe one Russian one too, and then see, see what uh, uh, might be done about them. By the way, today I have an article uh, in Asia Times about uh, an Iranian drone, one of the ones we're going to discuss, that hit a, an Israeli-owned oil tanker in the Persian Gulf uh, just uh, two days ago. So if you have an opportunity, take a look at it. Let me share the screen now, if I can, and push a few buttons. And uh, there we are. And if I can get it to slideshow, maybe I can't but you can follow it this way. Uh, so let's talk about stopping Iran's drone program. And, and by the way, I'm bringing the, the expertise I have in this is I spent eight years, almost eight years <coughs> in the Defense Department trying to stop technology from going to the then Soviet Union. And, and we were pretty successful at the end of the day. So I know a little bit about how you go about it and what you do. I ran a large uh, team of about 130 people, uh, and I did a wonderful job for the United States. Now, Iran is producing thousands of drones, thousands, not hundreds, but thousands. And, and they're sending them all over the place uh, uh, to uh, Russia, which you know about now, uh, to Ethiopia, to Venezuela, to Sudan, uh, and of course, in the Middle East, uh, into Lebanon and Syria, just to name some of the places. They have built up a, a network of customers among nations and proxy groups, including in Yemen and Lebanon, uh, but also in Gaza uh, uh, and in Syria. They've also set up offshore production in Syria and Lebanon and Venezuela and Tajikistan. So they, they're making their drones in, in various places. And this is a, a trick, actually, so that they can uh, protect uh, their uh, manufacturing capabilities by putting them in different places. In late October, Israel struck the uh, Dimas uh, military airport in Syria, which is a base of operations for Iran-backed forces and Hezbollah that has been ramped up in recent months as Iranian drone shipments started to roll in. So they're very busy there, and it's a real threat to Israel, just as it's a real threat to Ukraine and to many other places. Now, Russia has ordered 1,700 unmanned, uh, uh, unmanned aerial vehicles of different types, and, and they're using it right now to, to primarily attack the infrastructure of Ukraine. Even today, this morning, uh, there were over 100 more uh, uh, cruise missiles and drones fired by the Russians, taking out a number of power plants, a, a factory, some apartment blocks, and other, other buildings in, in Ukraine. One of the features of Iran's drones is they're cheap. The Shahed 136, by the way, that's the same one that hit the oil tanker in the Persian Gulf, which features a, dis a distinctive triangular wing and operates autonomously. It carries a, a warhead of 80 pounds. It's a good size. 
and it's designed to explode on impact. These units cost about $20,000 each, which is for a drone, very cheap. And while Russia also produces, uh, these are called suicide drones, and while Russia also produces su its own suicide drone called the CUB, K-U-B, loitering munition, they don't compare in range or in the warhead size to the Iranian ones, which is the reason Russians are buying them from Iran. Now, we're going to talk about two, two Iranian drones that have been shipped to Russia for use in Ukraine. And we'll also mention a little bit about one Russian drone. The two we're going to cover is the Shahid-136, that's the smaller one, and the bigger one, which is called the Mujahar-6. Uh, it's just a little video clip. You can see the, the Mujahar drone. It's got a pusher propeller. It's made mostly of plastic. A series of indigenous drones. And it is operations. But Mujahar 6 can conduct combat operations. You can see it dropping a missile. Mass production of it began after the Iranian Defense Ministry delivered the homegrown military aircraft to the Islamic Revolution Guards Corps. And that tells you who runs it in Iran, by the way. And by the way, it was the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps that hit the Israeli tanker uh, two days ago. Now, while Iran says its drones are home uh, homemade, homegrown, and made entirely of domestically produced parts, the truth is quite different than that. Uh, the drones combine American, European, Asian, and Chinese parts and software. And I'm going to show you some of that. Iran's drones use laser target designators, some from the United States, GPS receivers, mainly from China, and engines either from Europe or China. Now, I think the U.S. has a golden opportunity to, to stop Iran's drone programs by blocking the supply of critical parts. The, the cheaper Iranian drones like the Shahed-136 depend on engines from China, the more elaborate drones, particularly the Mohajar 6, uses an engine made in Austria, supplied by a company that's controlled by the United States. So let's take a look what I'm talking about. First of all, I am in the wrong place. This is the Mohajar 6 drone. You can take a look at it. Uh, it has a number of parts from, here's parts from a Hong Kong firm, parts from Texas Instruments and Linear Technologies, which are American companies, optical and infrared cameras that come from Asia and the United States, and a, an engine, the Rotax 912, it's a 100 horsepower engine that comes from Austria. It's the engine I'm gonna focus on in a minute. Now, Mohajar 6 is a knockoff of an intelligence surveillance target acquisition and reconnaissance and attack drone combo very similar to the Turk, Turkish made Bayraktar TB2. The Bayraktar drone, you may recall, was heavily used uh, in the Nagorno Karabakh war and it was very successful. They did a great deal of damage to the, to the Armenian forces. And both the Turkish drone and the Iranian one use the same engine built by the Austrian firm Rotex. Now, Rotex is, was bought actually some years ago by Bombardier of Canada and spun off as part of a group called the Bombardier Recreational Products Group, or BRP. 
BRP, in turn, was bought by Bain Capital in the United States. They own 50% of it. The Bombardier family, which owns 35%, and the Caisse de Depot in Placement de Quebec, 15%. So Bain Capital, based in Boston, basically controls it. And one of Bain's co-founders, just so you, you, I'm sure you'd like to know, is Senator Mitt Romney. <laughs> so this, this hits home, and we'll take a closer look yet further on. Now, the Rotex engines were supplied by Rotex through its distributor in Italy to Iran, although the Italian distributor says it didn't do that. And I don't really accept that. I, I think it's pretty clear where they came from. And Rotex itself says it never supplied engines to Iran for military purposes. Well, you can supply them for civilian purposes and stick them in a drone. I mean, this is a silly kind of thing for them to say. The truth of the matter is they're providing plenty of them to the Iranians. Now, they shouldn't be doing it because of the sanctions, but they're doing it anyway. Uh, and we have seen wrecked Mahajar UAVs in Ukraine with the Rotex engine in them. So there's no secret here. Iran also has a, a, an authorized repair facility in Iran called Mahada Wing. This is from the website of Mahada Wing. So if you look it up on your, on your internet, you can go and visit the website. So it, it was a straightforward operation. The Austrian firm was making them supplying through a distributor in Italy to Iran. Iran had a, a service center, which it set up, authorized by Rotex. And this is, this is how they play the game. This is a photo of one of the Rotax engines from a Hocher 6 drone recovered in Ukraine. And if, I don't think there's any doubt that the name Rotax is completely visible. And, and, and this is a unique engine. It's, it's not something that, that you, you can replace very easily with another engine from somewhere else. Uh, now, I think the US, the U.S. says Iran is violating U.S. sanctions by delivering drones to Russia, uh, which is probably the case, which means that a U.S. controlled company is violating the sanctions as well. So how come Washington hasn't put sanctions directly on these engines? And I ask this not rhetorically, but I, I ask it as a, uh, why hasn't Washington simply put a stop to it? The, the president can do this in various ways. He can just ask, uh, the, 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 the Commerce Department and the Defense Department to, to do it by uh, directly, or you can put out an executive order. There, there's nothing to prevent this from being blocked. And because of the ownership, which is American, there's, there's no doubt that we have we can cover it. But anyway, the EU has the same sanctions, and, and Austria is in the EU. The, the EU agrees that Iran is breaking UN sanctions on drone deliveries to Russia. So that, that problem is off the table. So in short, if we want to, we can immediately block any further deliveries of, of engines and spare parts to Iran. Now, the engine, I think, is all important because the drone can't fly without it. And there aren't really any good substitutes. And the ones that are out there are all either in Europe or Australia. The Chinese don't really make an equivalent engine with the right amount of power to 
to run this drone. They would have to redesign the drone to, and that would take some time. But even there, I think China can be persuaded to cooperate. And I'll talk more about that in a while. The electronics, by the way, of the Mohajer 6, I'm not really covering them in any depth today, are largely American. Here's a couple of photographs of two devices. This is an analog device, a video processor, and, and this is a, a field, program, field programmable gate array made by Xilinx. The chip is actually made in Taiwan for Xilinx, but it's distributed by Xilinx. And I want to point out that the circuit board that this, these are mounted on is a very sophisticated one. It was not produced in Iran. It is likely that it was produced either in Asia or even possibly in the United States. It's a custom board, but it's a well-done professional job, certainly not done in Iran, which doesn't have this kind of capability. Now, this is the Shahid 136. This is a suicide drone. And it's gotten a new name recently, the Geron 2, or Geron, I'm not sure which is the Russian pronunciation, because the Russians have modified it. Uh, as you can see, it has a 40 uh, kilogram or 80 pound uh, warhead. It has a pretty good range now of about 600 miles. And the cost of this drone is about $20,000. Uh, here is an engine. You can see it from top down, looking down. It's a four-cylinder Chinese engine. Probably this one is made by DLE in China. Uh, nothing particularly special about the engine, except that it's Chinese, and the Chinese are supplying them in very large numbers uh, to uh, Iran. Once again, as we've discussed, uh, and by the way, this is this is the DLE 222 engine company, the Miller Wajang technology company. Um, it does business in the United States. It does business all over Europe. Uh, now, the, the, the engine specifically is not controlled by standard export controls, but it's controlled by sanctions, the sanctions on Russia uh, that, that are in, effective today. So if the United States approaches China and says, look, we don't want you to sell these engines anymore, we want to cut it off, I believe the Chinese would cooperate. By the way, here's the, the Chinese engine new and uh, from the factory. Now, China says it will not supply war materials to Russia during the Ukraine war. In fact, they're doing it. Um, and I think that, that given the, the now new cooperation with China that has just been agreed uh, at the G20 summit, that this is the right time to approach the Chinese and ask them to not supply. Of course, we have to clean up our own act as well. Now, let's uh, take a little side trip here to a Russian drone called the Orlan 10. And I'm putting it uh, up because I think it's interesting. It also is made of French, Swiss, and Japanese parts with US electronics. France is supplying the thermal imaging camera of the Orlean. Orlean is being very heavily used uh, in uh, the Ukraine war by the Russians. It's not an attack drone. It doesn't drop bombs or do anything like that. But what it does do is it allows, it allows the Russians to use it to target 
uh, their rockets and other uh, cruise missiles and even their other drone, their suicide drones, for example, on uh, Ukrainian targets. Uh, Switzerland supplies the GPS, the Global Positioning System module, um, which includes the US and uh, US GPS system and the Russian GLONASS, which is their GPS system. And Japan supplies the engine and the engine's electronic controls. Here we can see a couple of uh, Russians working on the Orland 10. It's not a very big drone. And here we can see the engine. And the, you can very clearly see the, the name Saito, or Saito, which is the Japanese company that makes the engine and the electronic ignition system, which you can clearly see in the photo. This is one, again, that was recovered uh, in Ukraine. Now, this is another little gem that's, that's in uh, the Orland drone. This is a very sophisticated uh, infrared detector chip that is called the Pico 640 Gen 2. This chip is very expensive. It costs something like $7,000 each. So you can imagine if you're producing a lot of drones, it's gonna be quite pricey. And these come from France. And, and the company, uh, the company that, that, that makes them, uh, which is now called, has taken on a new name, Linred, uh, is the only U European infrared manufacturer that already has its detectors deployed in space. It's a very sophisticated piece of, uh, a piece of equipment that the Russians are using in, in their drones. I don't know if it's not being used also in Iranian drones. This is something we have to investigate, but I wouldn't be surprised. So what I wanna tell you is today is I've only shown you essentially the tip of the iceberg here. Iran is importing a lot of technology from the West and from China for its drone program. Without that technology, it's out of business. I believe that there's at least significant evidence, and I'm sure that the Pentagon and the CIA have a lot more, that Iran has a very in-depth worldwide acquisition network that feeds its drone programs and probably other Iranians' weapons programs. I haven't investigated the others. And the way we learn about this is when the stuff crashes and we take it apart. So otherwise you don't learn anything. But uh, even the Israelis, I think, understand where this stuff is coming from. Uh, I don't think Iran has uh, a microelectronics uh, capability of its own. Uh, I think they're weak in electro-optics. And some of the specialized uh, avionics and gyros and things like that, they have to import. They don't make them. So it seems to me that we have this great opportunity to, uh, to stop all this if, if Washington can be persuaded to get its act together. So I've come up with, with kind of four steps uh, that I invite you to consider. First of all, and number one, cut off all electronic supplies to Iran and Russia. And this can be done by law under the UN sanctions, the Russian sanctions, or by executive order. Secondly, inform our allies and friends that sanctions plus the executive order apply to them. If they cheat, the US will act punitively against them. I know that, that, that sounds rough, but the truth of the matter is that we can persuade our allies. They have very little skin in the game. And I think 
if we ask them to cooperate, they will do it. The problem is no one's asked them. At least that's what it seems like to me. And also, given the importance not only of the U.S. market, but the American security umbrella, I think they would comply willingly. Those that won't comply can be dealt with in other ways. Third step, ask China to stop selling tons of drone materials to both Russia and Iran, as these materials are fueling the war in Ukraine. China says that it doesn't want to fuel the war in Ukraine. Let's hold them to that declaration. And while China might lose face with their Russian and Iranian allies, the Chinese will understand that the US and the EU have the option of tough sanctions if China doesn't comply. And finally, and most importantly, mobilize the FBI and the CIA to go to work against the Iranian and Russian technology acquisition networks. Both agencies, I think, have lots of information in hand which they can start working from. But they need marching orders, and marching orders like this come from the White House. So it's really up to the president to take this step. But I don't understand why he wouldn't, since it's in the United States security interest, it's in the world security interest to make it more difficult for Russia to conduct the war in Ukraine. So I think I will stop there. Let me see if I can get uh, stop sharing the screen. And I'm available for uh, any questions. And we have some questions. I thought so. Uh, thank you for what was an enlightening and depressing um, presentation. So I'm going to try to put a couple of questions together. We've we've had people signing in while, while you were talking. Okay. The first is a combination of two. How long has the US government understood that the um, Iranians were importing things from uh, Europe and the US and Japan and all these other places? So so how long have we known this? And then Secondly, doesn't CFIUS have to approve of exported dual-use technologies? Don't these things fall for the U.S. and U.S. companies under the dual-use um, label? Is it just that the administration doesn't care? All right, two things. Uh, for, there's two questions there, so let's see if I can answer them. In, in, in regard to the last question, which has, it's, it's not CFIUS, but it's the, the Export Control Administration of the Commerce Department that has uh, primarily has regulates this kind of trade, or the Treasury Department, which is called the OFAC, OFAC, um, which deals with 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 uh, sanction technology. This is a, this is not normally exported export controlled technology. This is sanctioned technology. It falls under the U.S. sanctions on Russia and whatever is left of the sanctions on Iran. So it would probably be Treasury Department that would have the lead here if 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 they're given the marching orders that I, I talked about. The first part of the question would remind me. Um, how long have we known this is going uh, on? How long? Yeah. I think we certainly knew it by the time the Saudi oil fields were hit by the same drones, the Shahid drones and cruise missiles also because we were able to get our hands on those drones. So I, I imagine that that's now uh, uh, more than a year ago. So, so we've known that at least that long. I think we've learned, we probably have known even longer than that. Look, if you take that Rotax engine as an, as an example, uh, 
that, those were being supplied by the Austrian company during the Nagorno-Karabakh War to to the Azerbaijanis through through Turkey, and uh, and at one point the Canadians told uh, Rotex stops stop sending them. So they they understand where these drones are going, and and I'm sure they have a good book on them. Yeah, I'm going to put together two others. <clears throat> um, to what extent is Ukraine a test bed, possibly, for Iran's intentions to use drones against Israel in the future? And it's not just the future. Obviously, you've talked about um, an Iranian drone that hit an Israeli ship already. And the second part of that question relates to China, because you said that China might be induced, could be induced, to stop doing it because they don't want to fuel the, um, the war in Ukraine. However, maybe they're using it as a test bed for what could be done to Taiwan in the future. So how much of this relates to future plans by nasty people? <laughs> There's plenty of nasty people in the world. There are, and they have. Uh, I think that uh, one thing that, that I didn't talk about, but I think it's very significant. Let's take the Shahid 136 drone and the Russian modifications to it, and the people don't have to understand that the Russians modified it, and it's called the Giron or Giron 2 now. Uh, they're being produced, however, modified way in Iran. So, so the Russians already saw some shortcomings in the Iranian drones, which and, and improvements they thought were needed to extend the range and to do some other things. Take a look at my Asia Times article today. So, so they changed it around, and and those modifications then were done by the Iranian manufacturer. So, yeah, they're learning a lot from that. They're also learning how good air defenses are against their drones, and ways to avoid them. So, from a war, a war operations point of view, they're, they're they're learning how to improve their drones. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to, and that's only the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more. So, tactically, operationally. The war is helping them learn uh, a lot that they can use against Israel or anybody else they don't like. They use, you know, they use them against Saudi uh, already uh, many times. They use them through the Houthis against Saudi. They use them against. Uh, they've used them against the Kurds in northern Iraq. So there's 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 plenty of places where they're where they're getting uh, experience. As far as China is concerned, I think it's less because first of all, China has its own drones. They don't need. Iranian drones, uh, how much reporting back they're getting from either the Russians or the Iranians, I don't know. Presumably they're getting it, but I just don't know how much. Um, but they'll learn some things. I think one of the issues for all drone makers today is securing the data links, the radio links, and the GPS systems from jamming uh, or from other kinds of interference. And and that's one of the things that I think we'll see more and more improvements uh, in the future. So a listener has asked, this may be impossible to know, but he asks it anyway. Um, there's a question about the inventory of key components that might already be inside Iran or might already be inside Russia. Is there any way to understand what the future of the programs look like, even if we take the steps we need to take, how long can those programs go on? I thought about that too. I mean, that's a tough one. Um, obviously, they they have an acquisition network, and they're and they're buying things and warehousing them. So we don't know how much. Um, 
But if they want to stay in business, they're going to have to parse them out, you know, to the Russians or keep them for themselves. So they're going to have to limit the numbers. When you get to the Rotax engines, I really don't think they have much of an inventory. I think they have to get those on a regular basis from, from Austria. Uh, they're not mass produced in that sense. So chips are another story. But I think we need to learn more. But there's some, there's some, that's why I sort of focused on the engines, because that's that's a place where we can have a more immediate impact. Okay, a couple more. <laughs> um, is it possible that Western intelligence agencies have already compromised the drones? Is there a way to uh, use cyber attacks against either the drone factories or the drones themselves? And second question, Iran has, uh, Israel has already attacked Iranian drone factories in Syria, as you mentioned. Right. Is that enough to disrupt the supply chain at all? Or is it so far spread that we can't do it without attacking, I don't know, Venezuela? I, I don't know. that. I never heard of any drone factory in Iran being attacked either through cyber means or by warfare means. I mean, no one's touched it. They've been doing this for quite some time. Uh, clearly, the, the Israelis are trying to chase the Iranians out of Syria and uh, Hezbollah out of Syria as well, and and to limit their their capabilities. So so you, whenever they bring in long range drones or armed drones or kamikaze drones or anything else, they're going to try and knock them off, and they do. Uh, I wish we would do the same thing, but we don't. But that's it, right? The Israelis attack the ones in Syria, and no one is attacking drone capabilities anywhere else. Not that I can tell. Um, I haven't seen any evidence of it, and the fact is that the you know they're they're exporting these things to uh, to the Houthis and to the uh, to uh, Hamas and to uh, Hezbollah and other places. So yeah, even Venezuela, where they're making them too. That's what we need. That's what we need in our in our hemisphere. Um, Iranian drones have been used against U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria, haven't they? Yes, they have. We, how have we responded to that? We haven't. <laughs> Plain and simple. I mean, we have very limited uh, capabilities for our own uh, for, for our own uh, uh, military people. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, we've just urgently sent the Avenger air defense system to uh, Ukraine. Um, there's only a couple of those systems built. One of them is used to protect the White House. But we've urgently sent them off to uh, to, uh, to 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 Ukraine. Did I say Syria before? I meant Ukraine. Oh. Sent them off to Ukraine to defend against things like the Iranian drones. Um, but we didn't give them to our own soldiers. Make any effort. In fact, they have almost no real credible air defense capabilities so in for example in our deployments in Iraq or in Syria so leaving us vulnerable to things yeah I mean it's disgusting but uh, the truth of the matter is that we have we have uh, we have left our troops on, on mostly unprotected there are some systems there but not very good ones We're mostly unprotected and we have not done what we should have been doing there that's slightly off the topic, but that's a really important thing to understand that we have service people deployed in places where we're not. That's right. Yeah. Um, 
And okay, in line with that, here's a question. How do U.S. drones compare with what you've seen of the Iranian and Russian versions? If we're not protecting ourselves, do we at least have offensive capabilities with our own drones? Well, U.S. drones typically are much more sophisticated than the ones you see from Iran and Russia. Um, and they're made, you know, they're, 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 they're more advanced. Uh, whether we're talking about really fancy ones, you know, the Reaper or the, the Predator drones, which are very high altitude and, and, and can do lots of bad things to the enemy, uh, or we're talking about tactical drones. But uh, we, are, we are more focused on, on sort of the counterterrorism kind of drones we have been in the past than we have been on focused on warfighting drones, which I think is, is probably a, a mistake because you know, it's looking more and more like we have to be focused on warfighting drones. We've used the predators and reapers to kill people like Soleimani and, 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 and that kind of operation. And, and it works very well. It's a piece of genius, actually. Uh, incidentally, the predator really was an Israeli design that uh, Jim Woolsey took out to General Atomics and, and got them to build it on the come. And, and then the CIA said, oh, this is really neat. We need it. Uh, so, I mean, but point here, and Israel, of course, has been one of the pioneers in drone development. But I think Israel used them for combat, primarily, where the U.S. has used them primarily for counterterrorism. And I think that that in future, drones, as Nagorno-Karabakh first proved, uh, drones are going to play a big role in warfare unless people find a way to get to shoot them down e efficiently, which they, doesn't exist right now. And so from a combat point of view, the U.S. has to refocus. It has all that. We have all the capabilities, but we have to refocus our efforts in that in that field because that's where the action is going to be in future. So you mentioned Israeli technology in the early drones. Israel was a pioneer in drones. Started with a model airplane club, actually, many years ago. Um, listener writes in that Israeli technology was discovered in Iranian drones used in Ukraine. Um, do we know anything about no, that? No, I never heard that. That never happened? No, I don't think that's right. Okay. I, I've never heard of any. Uh, well, there, there may be one possibility, uh, but I think that was in a Russian drone, not a, not a, not a Iranian one. That was a, a, a GPS chip that was uh, a design that was sold to the Russians by Israel that the Russians then manufactured and used in their drones. So, yes. In that sense, to the Russian drone, uh, the answer is yes. Um, but beyond that, I don't know if anything. So, so then again, that goes to the question of keeping your technology uh, away from enemies and potential enemies. Uh, two side questions. Is there any uh, evidence that the Iranians have used drones, not, not combat drones, but drones, to monitor the people in Iran in the, in the revolution that we hope succeeds? I don't think they're that good. Uh, with their drones yet uh, to follow people, you know that's that's fairly sophisticated. You, you typically what what you do is you look for their cell phone, and, and then you track them by cell phone. You, know, you can do it overhead very efficiently. We can do it for sure, but I'm not sure the Iranians can. Okay, and the other is about North Korea. Do they have any inputs anywhere into this problem, or is that outside of their? I haven't seen any evidence of the North Koreans uh, uh, 
with any important drone technology of any kind. I don't mean they have any, but I haven't seen it. They're too busy with um, <laughs> well, they're too busy getting ready for a nuclear test to mess up things in Asia. Right. Uh, someone wrote to us. Aside from articles like yours, and by the way, I think we're going to post uh, Steve's latest article on our website, so you'll be able to see it at Insight. Um, but aside from articles like yours, have the American media largely missed this story? I mean, we haven't seen much about this. And if they have, why have they? Is this an effort to, um, I don't know, protect an administration that isn't doing anything about a problem, or are they just missing it? I don't think they're just missing it. I mean, typically reporters that write in the, the Western press get their cues from the government. The government says, well, look at this. There are a lot of American parts in it. Well, our government's not going to say that. <laughs> not going to say it because they'd be embarrassed to say it. So they haven't written about it. Actually, to, today's Wall Street Journal has an article. Uh, it's important for the Wall Street Journal to write that. I've been writing it for months. And other people have write, written about it as well, Small War Journal, for example, and places like that. So it's it's good that the Wall Street Journal, it's a mainline and important newspaper, is writing the story so people are aware of what's going on. And I think, you know, it's really important for our government to deal with this and not to sit on its hands and make pretend it didn't happen. Um, and in that regard, have, has anybody that you know of spoken with Mitt Romney about Bain Capital's uh, participation in this? And along with that question goes another question. Um, do we have conflict of interest rules for people on the Hill about what they invest in that might impact American security? Well, he did that before he was before he before was a senator. senator. I realize I'm not yeah. I'm not saying that he's. I don't have any. I, I I don't think that's a. What I wanted to show is that this is, you know, maybe Mitt Romney should listen to this broadcast <laughs> and say, hey, really, you know, I'm, that was my baby. I put I put that, you know, it was very successful. Bank capital is a big deal. So maybe I'm going to tell them to get on the stick here and let's stop it. That would, that would be terrific if, if Mitt Romney would do that. I hope he will. And he might if he... Knows. I mean, as you say, he did Bain Capital many years ago, and he may not be intimately familiar with the things it's doing now. He's got other things, you know. Yeah, but he was co-founder, so <laughs> he knows. He 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 surely has some idea about what the company does. I mean, uh, and he's you know he's going to have a lot of influence as a U.S. senator, and it would be great if he would step in now and say, you know, we own this company. Let's make them follow the rules. Let's make them pro-America. Be nice. So we're coming to the end of the program, and people who listen regularly or even periodically know that I like to go out with a question, the answer to which uh, leaves us on an optimistic or positive note. We have had none of that so far today. We have had nothing positive. We have had nothing optimistic. Um, I'm ready to get under my desk. So let's try for <laughs> a closer that works better. Well, the, clo the closer is that that we can, you know, we have the ability to impact and stop, I believe, Iran's drone program and maybe many other uh, military programs in Iran 
because there's this big network out there that they must depend on for for their systems for their war fighting equipment. So this is a great opportunity, positive opportunity for the United States and for our allies to really step up and and get the job done. Positive opportunity, optimistic moment. There you go. Chance, any chance that the new uh, House of Representatives under different leadership will take this up as an issue? Is that an optimistic thing we might look toward? It is, and I'll be very happy to testify there. Um, I think they're going to call you. They're probably watching this program. Let's hope so. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Steve Bryan, thank you for an enlightening, if depressing, program. Um, We need it. We need to understand what our government is doing. We need to understand the capabilities our adversaries have. We need to understand where we fall short sometimes as a country. So this has been terrific. We really appreciate the time and appreciate having you with us. Pleasure. We are off next week for Thanksgiving. We'll see you in two. And um, everybody have a good, safe, happy, healthy holiday. And again, Steve, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.